Don't give up. Don't give up. Part of our lesson today, uh, in Luke chapter 18, if you've been turning there, we're going to learn about not giving up, particularly in the area of prayer. I love that hymn, by the way. I think it's, for me, it's the best hymn on prayer that I know. There are lots of other hymns that mention prayer, but this whole hymn that we just sang is all about prayer. And I think the relevance of it uh, will become uh, clearer as we go through this passage today. In fact, this is really the first of a two-part sermon, which concludes next week, because we're looking at the next part of Luke 18 next week, which is about the, pre- the, uh, the parable of the tax collector and the, uh, the, uh, the Pharisee and uh, the self-righteousness in prayer. So self-righteousness and prayer in that challenge uh, is next week. This week we're looking at the topic of perseverance and faith in prayer uh, from the first, first part of Luke 18. So that's where we are uh, now. So how does it feel, let me ask us, how does it feel when you continually ask for something that you know belongs to you or you should have and you don't get it? How does it feel? Frustrating? What else does it cause in us? Resentment. Resentment. So frustration, resentment, resentment. I can say the word. Yeah. Disappointment. Yeah. Jealousy. Maybe jealousy, like somebody else is getting what they deserve or whatever. If I'm not, it could be jealousy. Yeah. Anger. Anger. Anger, perhaps, towards the person who should be providing what they should be, what you deserve, maybe. Yeah? Yeah, anger, frustration, disappointment. It's a very difficult feeling. And <coughs> sometimes I have felt that with God. I don't know about you, but disappointment sometimes with God, sometimes frustration with God, sometimes anger. I mean, I'm not saying it's justified. I'm just saying that's how I felt when I prayed about something and prayed about something and feel like it's, it should be happening by now. And why is it not? And that sense, and I, I think we, we, I'm not sure we'll get to deal with all of that in today's time, but there's a lot in this passage that might be able to help us with that. So that's a lot of what we're looking at here. Um, Chantel's going to read the passage for us. So, Chantel, do you want to come up and, and read for us? And then we'll dig into our passage. parable of the persistent widow. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she does this, so that she won't, so that she won't eventually come back and attack me. And then the Lord said, "Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for the, for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes." Will he find faith on the earth? Thanks very much. Thank you. So we're going to unpack the parable, and then we're going to talk about what we learn about God, and what we learn about ourselves, and particularly what we learn about prayer and faith. So if we can be thinking about that as we go through uh, this passage here, that will help us. So first of all, how is it that we 
How is it that we can not give up, not get discouraged? The word there in Greek, let's put it on the slide. Okay, idea, there it is. Ekkakeo uh, is the word of not giving up, not to become discouraged, not to, to wipe off or to wipe dry. So the idea is when you give up, it's like the slate is clean and there's nothing there anymore, it's gone. It's that, that feeling of, of discouragement that leads us to give up. So that's what he's talking about here. What will keep us praying when we feel that? Well, first of all, let's talk about the widow and the judge in the, in the parable here. So the, the judge, presumably in some sense, um, approximates to God. It represents, he represents God and the widow represents the person praying. That seems to be the simple part of of the representation there. Um, how do you suppose, let's talk about the judge. How, how do you suppose the judge is feeling uh, towards the woman? Uh, what would be your <clears throat> sense here from this parable? How's he feeling? Pain. She's a pain, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anything else? Bear in mind, judges in that context were not paid. So when you were a judge, it was like a civic duty you just did in your spare time. So you weren't being paid. You'd sit in this marketplace in the open air, um, usually in a, in a public place where people could come to you to get justice and uh, represent themselves. So, how else might the judge be feeling? He's a bit exasperated. Exasperated, yes. Who was that she that? Pretty dramatic. The, the Greek can mean to give someone a black eye. It's like, I'm going to come and give you a black eye. It can mean that. Or it can also mean, uh, give me a headache. She's giving me a headache. Right? Yeah. How else might he be feeling? Anything else? So in what way does the judge represent God and in what way does he not? Might be the next question. So, in what way does the judge represent God here accurately, if you like, or fairly, or in some sense? How does he represent God? He's the one who can give justice. He's the one who has the capacity. Okay, maybe that's part of the lesson. He's teaching her. Does she really want justice? Maybe. Yeah? yeah. Okay. God does not give justice for fear of being attacked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's true, right? I don't think he needs to fear attack. Good. In what way does this, the judge not represent God? Let's put it that way. And what, what's the difference here? Because it's of not, no parable tells us everything. So in what way uh, does he not represent God? He's not compassionate. No. The judge doesn't care. Right, so that's not like God. God does care. There's a contrast going on there. Excellent. Getting exasperated. God doesn't get exasperated. I mean, I think God has... Feelings in some sense, right? Because he has compassion, but he doesn't, doesn't doesn't succumb to the same kind of exasperation that we would suffer from. Yeah. Anything else? Always the judge like God and perhaps not like God. Any other thoughts? I mean, the judge is reluctant, right? I don't, I don't think God's reluctant to answer our prayers. It's not like he's like, mm, I just don't feel like it today. Yeah. I hope not. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Let's hope not, no. Yeah, God's not moody. He's not subject to his... His, his feelings don't prevent him from acting right, right or rightly or in righteousness, right? So there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. Uh, judge, 
the judge's motivation is just to get the woman out of his hair. Yeah. Right? Just get rid of her. God's not like that. God's motivation when he answers our prayers, or when he teaches us perseverance, which we'll talk a bit more about later, is a motivation of love. Very different. This is an argument in the parable of what they call an a fortiori argument, which is where you take something that's lesser to show something that's greater. Happens a lot in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The parables are there a lot. So what Jesus says here, look, if even this judge, who is uncompassionate and doesn't care and only gets rid of the woman to prevent her giving him a headache or a black eye, if even he will answer and give her justice, how much more you should be able to trust that God will give you justice and give it quickly. Now, the quickly part will come on to in a minute because it's an interesting thought. So that's what we learned here about the judge and the widow. Uh, what do we learn from the widow in terms of prayer, in terms of if the widow represents somebody like us praying? What do we learn from that? In what way is the widow like anybody today? Uh, yeah. Persistent. Persistent? Uh, well, the fact that she, that the guy felt threatened by her, felt, you know, she, she obviously was quite intent, intense about her thoughts. Yeah, yeah, she was very focused. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Very vulnerable. Don't you feel, don't, as a Christian, don't you sometimes feel like you're amongst the most vulnerable people in the world? Because it's easier, I think it's easier to take advantage of a Christian in a way than a non-Christian. Because we have to act righteously. You might be denied promotion at work because you're righteous. You might be denied advancement in, in various things you're, you're looking to achieve. You might be looked down on in your family because you refuse to lie or be deceitful. I mean, there's, we're, we're vulnerable in some ways. Right? Okay, anything else? Parallels between the widow and those who pray. Any of us? I mean, he said no once, he said no twice, he said... I don't know how many times. It doesn't say, does it? She keeps bothering me. Mm. Okay, so, yeah, persistence, courage. It takes courage to keep going back when you hear a no. It's not just courage to keep going back. It's courage to all the townspeople. Like, yes. they, they would notice yes. that she had gone back weak. After week, after week, not saying yes. the same people were there, but you're gonna have more than one argument in a month, aren't you? Supposedly, so you're gonna bend up. What'd you hear last week? She's still asking the same thing. It's, it's, it could almost alienate her from her own. <coughs> yeah. No, she's in the queue again. Yeah. There would have been a queue. Yeah. Right, and she's in the queue again, eating up the time. I mean, I need some time with this judge. She's back again, you know. Yeah. Okay, so it's public is another challenge for her. One thing I think about the widow is that she recognizes that the judge is the only source of justice for them. She does know that he's the one to go to, even though he keeps saying no. So there's a tr in a sense, there's a trust, not in him and his character, but certainly in him in his ability to help her. And I think there's a parallel perhaps there with us and God. That sometimes, whether, however we feel about our relationship with God or about God, or how our upbringing has influenced our view of God, still, we can still trust that he is the source, mm -hmm. the one with the power to help mm -hmm. with whatever our needs are. So we've got something going on there. Um, okay, so 
Let's talk a bit about God and a bit about us to, to, to finish. And then we're going to finish with that and then we're going to pray. Because I, <laughs> it doesn't seem right to have a sermon on prayer and then I'll spend some time praying. So we'll spend some time praying after this and that will conclude uh, things for the day. Uh, final song. Um, so I, it's interesting what Jesus says. You know, what is Jesus' summary of his own parable? Uh, his uh, summary is this. Listen to what the unjust judge says. So the judge, judge is saying, I'll, I'll sort it out, otherwise she'll keep on bothering me. Listen to that. But will God not bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? So there's some assumptions here. The first assumption, or the first emphasis, is that we are chosen. The judge did not choose for the woman to come to him. But God has chosen us. We're his chosen ones. One of the reasons that should give us confidence that God hears our prayers is that he chose us. His chosen ones. Now in the context here, we haven't got time to unpack all this, but in the context of chosen ones, specifically to a Jewish audience listening to this, would remind them of, of course, uh, Abraham and then being the chosen people taken out of Egypt into the promised land and given the promises in the law, but also would remind them of what's called the eschatological end of things. In other words, that when the time is wrapped up, when God comes in his glory, and for a Christian, when Jesus comes back, then all of us who have suffered, and you see this in Revelation quite a lot, Revelation 17, for example, where the people who have suffered because they were Christians, those who were beheaded, those who were persecuted, those who were imprisoned, those who just suffered in any sense, they will be vindicated. They'll be brought to the throne. They'll be part of the great messianic banquet feast at the end of time and then the new world, a new, new existence that we'll all have together. And so we are chosen for that. And since God has set that, and that's there for us prepared, then that helps us to have confidence in the meantime as we pray for justice that may not come in our lifetime. And I think this is part of the recognition we have to, something we have to recognize with this passage, is that when Jesus is there will be justice for God's chosen ones. It may not be in this life. That's not the promise here. The justice will come. We will be justified. We will be recognized for our perseverance and our faith and our loyalty to Jesus Christ. But the full recognition of that, which may come somewhat in this life, but the fullness of all of that is in the next life, when the Son of Man comes, because that's what he's talking about there, right? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So that's a when, that's in the future. And he doesn't say when that's going to be. And because that connects with what Charles was talking about last week from Luke 17, about the Son of Man coming, about the kingdom coming. When is it going to be? When is it going to happen? And we can all speculate, but the question is really how, whether we are people of faith when that day comes. That's what he's emphasizing here. And part of the recognition of how God will recognize those who have faith is those who are persevering in prayer. I think that puts it all together. Those who persevere in prayer, trusting God, are those who Jesus will recognize as the people of faith when the Son of Man comes. So some, some of that, something of that is going on here because we are his chosen ones. And I think another part of it is that we allow God to be the judge. We allow God to be the judge. If you just turn over with me for a moment to Romans 12. I think, I think this is very important and very helpful when we're treated unjustly. The world is not treating us in the way that we would like or we think is, is, is fair and right. In Romans 12, let's pick it up in, um, in verse 19. 
Actually, verse 17. Let's start in verse 17. Romans 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Now who wants to do that, honestly? Your enemy, if he's hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think this feeds into our passage in Luke 18. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't be overcome by your disappointment, your discouragement, by the fact that God seems to be taking a long time to answer your prayers. Don't let that get to you. Don't, don't be overcome by the evil in the world, but overcome by doing good. And I think persevering in prayer is part of that, because I can't continue to have the strength to continue to do good unless I'm praying, <laughs> especially when I'm feeling attacked or under pressure from the world. So there's a patience thing going on here that we trust that God is the judge and that he will respond at the right time. One of the trickier parts of the passage is where Jesus says uh, you will get justice or God's chosen ones will get justice and get it quickly. Quickly. Because what does that sound like? I mean, it sounds like right now. right? The widow goes to the judge time and time and time and time again eventually she gets justice. But the contrast here is that you're going to get justice quickly. The thing is, <laughs> the thing is though, is I think it's referring to the swiftness of the justice rather than the fact it's coming now. Because there's God's timing in all these things. We can't demand of God the timing of the justice that's given to us. We're not in control of that. We don't know the best timing. We have to allow God to be the judge of time. And he is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And with one day, one day with, the, with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. We've got to allow him to have the say-so on the timing. When, it come, when, when the justification comes, and the vindication comes, it will come quickly. But it's not something we can demand. Perseverance must finish its work. We become mature and complete. It's another passage we need to bear in mind. There's something about perseverance that helps us a lot. So let's finish off by thinking about what this means for us and what it means um, in us. Um, when I read this passage, I suppose for me, it's about how much am I really trusting God for my current problems. The currently today, the things that I'm unhappy about. Maybe the consequences of bad stuff in the past, but also currently. How much am I actually really trusting that he has my best interests at heart? And I think when I, when I, understand, when I believe that he has my best interests at heart, then I pray perseveringly. When I don't, I don't really bother to pray or I give up praying, or at least praying about certain things. So the, one of the questions is about trust, and what, and, and I think that's the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here, because there's lots of different, if you like, applications of faith, but in this context, it's about a perseverance in prayer, a persevering in trusting God, even when we don't see it, see justice being done at the moment, right now. It's a faith of that kind. And that means, if we have that kind of faith, we don't give up praying about the things that are truly important. So, I think a question for me, a question for all of us, could be, 
bit connected with what Osagi was talking about, about resolutions of New Year and after a while things wear off, our motivation wears off. Are there, are there some important <coughs> prayers, important <coughs> prayers that you stop praying? Things that really are important to pray about. About family members, about our own hearts, um, about whatever it may be. Other important prayers that we've we used to pray more about, but we've slipped off the prayer list. Perseverance is a big deal here. It's very important from what we, from what we can see in this passage. Let's not give up. Let's pray with patience. It's interesting that the widow doesn't just trust the character of the job. Judge. She, she trusts her own perseverance. We are called to trust the character of God. And to persevere in prayer with patience while we wait to see him answer those prayers. Perseverance is a funny thing. Um, you, when you really feel the need for an answer, you do persevere. Uh, Penny and I were on holiday two weeks ago, as most of you know. We were uh, on one of the Canary Islands, uh, the Palma. And it was lovely, we had a great time. Uh, but the holiday didn't start too well, because we arrived, and we landed, and we got out of the airport, and we got in a, a, we had a car, we drove the car off, um, I don't know, half an hour, an hour away, and um, suddenly Penny realised that she didn't have her mobile phone. It wasn't in her handbag, it wasn't in her pocket. Where was the mobile phone? And uh, she thought, I think I left it on the plane. And of course, these planes, these easy jet, they tend to be turned around quickly, you know, and go back, right? So we thought, oh, it's gone. And we were going to be a whole week on the island, and she'd not have her phone, and all okay, kind you know, oh, dear. Um, so we, we thought about what to do, and, and, and should we go and try and find it, or what, what should we do? And in the end, we decided to drive back to the airport, because uh, we couldn't find a phone number for the airport and things. So we drove back to the airport. And Penny ran in. While she ran in, I got the documents out for the travel organisers, and I rang, I rang EasyJet, I rang Gatwick Airport, where we left from, I rang the company we did the booking with, I rang another company that uh, do lost and found, because another, it's not EasyJet that does it, and at Gatwick, they, they, it was only open Monday to Friday, and it was Saturday, and I couldn't get hold of them, there was an emergency number, I rang that, left a message, left a message on for EasyJet, for the company, for Gatwick, for the... Travel company, I got hold of the travel company, they gave me another number to phone, and I'm, I'm sitting in this car in, in, in the Canary Islands, making all these phone calls, trying to find where this phone might be, will it have already travelled back, could it be already in the air over the ocean somewhere to back, go back to Gatwick, might we get it back? And it was all, it's kind of frantic, you know, because it might be on the plane now, it might be about to take off, we've got to stop them somehow. And um, Penny ran into the airport, she was in there for a while. And she came running out holding her phone. Yes, got it. And uh, they found it on the phone, uh, on, on the plane. And uh, you see, my wife is incredible. She's so organized and everything. She actually has a, 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 a printed labeler label on her phone with her name on it. Wow. So it's got her name printed there on the phone. So uh, stuck to it. So they knew that she was on the, on the passenger manifest. So she knew she, they knew she was on the island. So they kept it. And she was able to go in and show some ID and, and pick up her phone. And, uh, and it was, you know, then all, all, all was good. All was good. And then I had to phone all these other people and say, uh, we found it. It's okay, don't worry. Um, but, you know, I mean, the idea of, I don't like the idea of being in, in, in the Canary Islands and phoning back to England and how much that might cost, I don't know, and all these things. 
Um, but, but it was important, at least to us at that point, to persevere by trying to find by any means possible how do we get this phone back. And there's something about if we cherish God as, as the one who is able to help us, if we cherish Him, then we persevere in prayer. We'll persevere in prayer if He is the one we really trust. And it's about, it's about that heart of desire to be with Him and to... To, to connect with him in that way, and then we persevere in, in a way that really helps. So finishing off, um, I was reminded of something the other day about how important it is that we trust that God has our best interests at heart and that Jesus is willing and interested in all of our prayers, every single one of them. And what came to me was an incident that happened um, in 1983. So this is a long time ago. Before some of you were born. <laughs> and before Emma was even thought of. Or, you know. And long time ago. And I was a music student at Birmingham University. I was in my final year. And part of my degree, one-seventh of my degree, was a dissertation. A very long dissertation. A very hard-to-write dissertation. And a dissertation that I put off writing. I was a procrastinator. I'm a recovery procrastinator even now. Um, but I was, a, I was a major procrastinator at the time. I was not a disciple. I was not focused. I was, I was in love with Penny, which took quite a lot of my focus, I must say. Um, but I, I put off doing my dissertation. It was the Easter holidays. I thought, it's okay. I'll do it when I get back to university. I arrived back at university. The first person I met said, hi, Malcolm. Have you handed your dissertation in yet? I said, no, I've got four weeks. You know, the, man, the, the thing said, there's four weeks till it has to be handed in. The person said, really? Oh, well, I did mine over Easter. I handed it in this morning. The second person I bumped into on my course said, hey, Mark, how was your Easter? Oh, I didn't really enjoy mine, she said, because I had to write my dissertation. I just handed it in. <laughs> I said, there's four weeks till, really? She said, I don't think so, but okay, fine. I, I guess I'm just lucky I handed it in early. The third person I met, have you had any dissertation in? <laughs> At this stage, I went back to my room and I picked up the booklet that, that gave you the dates for when everything had to be handed in and I suddenly realized it had to be handed in today. <laughs> and, and underneath it said, and any dissertation handed in late will not be marked. Which means I would fail the degree. <laughs> At that moment I had a panic. <laughs> as you can imagine. And I, then I bumped into another friend of mine called Lawrence. And I explained to Lawrence what was going on. And Lawrence was my best friend outside of Penny. He was my, you know, my best buddy. I love Lawrence, still do. And he said, right, Malcolm, plan of action. Right, let's get started. And he had a little toy, tiny portable typewriter. You remember those little portable ones in the little case? He had this tiny portable. He said, right, you can use this. He said, I'll make you some, some, some lunch. You go and sit in your room and start typing. I was like, what? I mean, 10,000 words of a dissertation, you know, with examples and everything, right? I had almost nothing. So he said, sit there and type. I was like, okay. So um, he fed me, went away, cooked me a nice meal, brought it in, served it to me, went out and bought some apples, and I just sat there eating apples the whole time in between, just typing away, typing and typing. He'd come in now and again, make me a cup of tea, a cup of coffee. I typed all day. I typed all night. I finished at 7 in the morning. And he stayed up with me and did it, you know, just it was amazing. 
Um, eight o'clock, I went to the university campus. I arrived there uh, when the, uh, the union thing, things were opening. I went in and photocopied everything because I had to copy things and paste them together. Got a binder from the shop at the university union, stuck it in. Nine o'clock, the office opened. I knocked on the door. I went in. I said, I've got my dissertation. And the secretary said, I'm sorry, it's a day late. Oh. Not accepting it. I said, I know it's a day late, but it's just one day, and here it is. Can I put it in this pit? There was a pigeonhole for the dissertation to go in for the professors, whatever, to mark it. Look at it. She said, no, I can't accept it. You cannot leave it here. It's not, I can't accept it. I'm sorry, that's the rules. I said, no, you don't understand. I've, I've, been, I've done it, it's here. And she said, no. Lawrence was with me. I walked out. I still I remember this just so vividly. I walked out of the hallway, and he said, Malcolm, we've got to do something. I said, what can I do? I've failed my degree. He said, no, I'm going to do something. He said, I'll go and talk to the prof. Now, the prof was over the whole department, and uh, he and Lawrence got on very well. I didn't get on that well with the prof. He was okay, but, you know, he wasn't friends or anything. But the prof really liked Lawrence. I mean, Lawrence was the most gifted musician in the whole year, and he was an amazing guy, still is, in music professionally. And uh, he got on very well with the prof. Pro Professor Ivor Keys was his name. And so he said, I I'll go and have a work with the prof. I said, okay. So I waited there. And he went off and, and knocked on the prof's door and went in and had a chat with the prof. And he came out and he said, Malcolm, give me your dissertation. <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah. So he took it back in, gave it to the prof. And he got marked. And I got the average mark I got for everything. And uh, I passed my degree. And I brought it with me. <laughs> this, this has not seen the light of day since 1983. It's been in a box in my, in my loft since those days. And here it is. You, I mean, the typing is, look, look at the blotches. I mean, it's Tipex in those days, right? That's what you, in those days, it's, so, it's all blotchy and badly typed with photocopied examples of bits and pieces bound in a rubbish binder uh, and has been in my loft for over 30 years and I've never reread it. I know it's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how could it not be? You've churned out 10,000 words in a, in a day and a night, you know, I mean, just off the top of my head, really. So I don't, I don't, I don't really know how that all worked out. The development of vocal techniques in the 20th century. That was my dissertation. There it is. And I'm going to hide it away again because I can't actually. It's just, it, it's, but the, so the, I've remained friends with Lawrence ever since. Uh, he came to um, he came to our wedding. That's that's Lawrence on the that's Lawrence there on the right. Yes, in the days when I had hair. Yes, that's that's me. Believe it or not. Bill, and that's Lawrence, and that's Penny's brother, Bill, in the background, and her stepbrother at the, at the reception of our wedding, and the the wedding. He's remained a friend ever since. He's now a professional composer. He worked for Andrew Lloyd Webber for many years. He was his right-hand man, actually, at, 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 at Andrew Webber. He's now a professor of music at Ulster University and can, writes compositions which are performed all around the world. He's a, an amazing musician, and we're still friends. And part of the reason we're still friends is because without him, I would have no degree. He went to intercede for me. Okay, that's, this is where I'm going with that. We need the right person to intercede for us. And this is where we'll end, Hebrews 7. Love this. Now, there have been many of the, those priests, Old Testament, Old Covenant priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, 
He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for you and I. Every prayer we offer is heard. Everyone is taken to the ear of God. And at the right time, justice will come quickly. We should trust him 